0: Sir Alpert, the team owner of Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Studio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Studio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs. His name's Dave Cameron. And what follows Dave Cameron, as he does every week, endeavors to analyze all baseball. A particularly ambitious endeavor that, uh, not just this week, but this day, uh, this day, Monday, November 24th, 2014, has seen. The Red Sox, the Boston Red Sox, sign shortstop-slash-third baseman Hanley Ramirez. It has seen the Boston Red Sox also sign third baseman Pablo Sandoval. And in addition, it has seen the Seattle Mariners extend uh, for seven years and $100 million another third baseman, Kyle Seeger. In the bulk of what follows, Cameron addresses those three transactions, starting with Seeger, then moving on to the Ramirez and Sandoval acquisitions by the Boston Red Sox, and also uh, discusses not just the Red Sox themselves, but also their stockpiling of right handed power, even as it uh, has become a rare commodity in Major League Baseball. I think
1: uh, the Red Sox have been collecting this skill set for a while, maybe in anticipation of the fact that there isn't a lot of right handed power in the game.
0: Snaggraph Studio features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Actually, doing work, uh, which is a uh, uh, lenience. Is there lenience
1: and amnesty? Uh, I don't think there's amnesty for being late to work because you were doing other work.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's. It's better than probably some of the other reasons. I mean, it's not your worst reason ever, but that doesn't make it a good reason. No, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at uh, your man though, Kyle Seager. Uh I don't think he's my man. I think
1: he's uh, his wife's man.
0: Yeah, right. And I guess uh well depending on what context we're discussing. Yeah, I mean I've
1: I've been historically low on Kyle Seeger, so I don't think I can put any claim into uh him being one of my guys. I he's proven me wrong every step of the way. <clears throat>
0: um by doing what? Hitting
1: for power. I think mm-hmm. is the the main thing. I think when we looked at Seeger as kind of coming out of college and even in the minor leagues, he profiled as a a doubles guy uh, who would, you know, hit for some contact, have a decent average, maybe draw some walks. But uh, I certainly didn't see 25 home run power in a deflated environment in a West Coast ballpark uh, from him. I thought he was, a, you know, probably going to be a 375-400 slugging guy.
0: Is there anything obvious uh, in terms of adjustments he's made, or was the assessment just somehow wrong from the beginning?
1: He hits the ball harder than we thought he did, which is uh, not something that's super easy to tell when you're mm-hmm. an amateur. Uh, but I do remember talking with Tony Bongino, uh when he was back with the Mariners a couple years ago, uh, and they were debating on whether Carlos Guillen or Kyle Seeger should be their third baseman, I think, in 2012. And uh, Tony said that he was looking at the HitFX data, and Seager actually hit the ball harder than anyone else on the team. So I think this is, uh, you know, one of those things where he got a knock for having not like great bat speed or not being a great athlete, but Kyle Seager just hits better than we thought he did.
0: Oh, well, that's difficult. But I was looking even at his original profile. And I think because you excerpted this in the uh, – we should mention that Kyle Seeger has received – among other, among the other things that have happened just today yeah. uh, in which deserve attention, Kyle Seeger has received a seven-year, $100 million extension from the Seattle Mariners. Uh, that's correct, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and as you note, he's paying – he's being paid like the player he is as opposed to maybe the player that you could re- – I think you could reasonably think he is just because maybe you don't watch a lot of Mariners games or –
1: or you're going off, you know, a scouting report from even a couple of years ago. I mean, I think when Seager came to the big leagues, he basically looked like the guy that scouts thought he was. I think he slugged one – or he had nice of 120 his rookie year. Uh, You know, if you weren't paying attention, you probably thought Kyle Seager was still, you know, David Bell or Bill Miller or something, and all of a sudden he's actually turned into, you know, Pablo Sandoval with better defense.
0: But even though – it should be noted that, I mean, Bill – well, Bill Miller was the comp, right? Yeah. Uh, insofar as – I guess what, any third baseman who has – a good, uh, like a good approach, but not a lot of power, that's, is that Bill Miller, Bill Miller? Well, is the,
1: sometimes it's Dave Hansen or Dave Magadan.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: But, but it's always one of those
0: guys. Yeah. Right, 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 right. It's funny though, because in the, so maybe you could speak to this, the positional adjustment for third base is the same as second base. Uh, yes, it is. Now it's like plus two and a half per season, whatever. Yeah, that does not necessarily mean that it requires the exact same number of skills. But I'm require I'm always surprised that the profile, the offensive profile, is uh, so much different for the third baseman than it is for the second baseman.
1: Yeah, I think I mean I've talked about this before. Of like, or I my personal belief is that the difference between third baseman and second baseman is height. Uh, people look at tall shortstops and say you're too tall to play the position. You're going like third. Okay. Uh, shorts, short stops who maybe don't have enough range short, and say, okay, well, you're going to second. Uh, some people say it's arm strength, which I think probably is correlated. There probably is a, some, you know, uh, relationship between height and arm strength. But I think, in general, guys who are 6'2 and over profile as third baseman, and we expect guys who look like that to hit for power and guys who are, you know, 6'1 and under end up at second base. Kyle Seeger, I think, is 5'11, you know, maybe pushing six foot. Uh, so to a lot of people, he's looked like a second baseman. Even as he turned into a pretty good third baseman, there have been rumors for years that, you know, he's better at second base, he profiles better there, just because he's not tall. And I think we, we look at guys who look like Kyle Seeger and we think they, they aren't that great of hitters, uh, and they're middle infielders, when in reality, Kyle Seeger's been hitting like a, a normal third baseman who's 6'3 for quite a while now.
0: Wait, Kyle Seeger is only... He's short. I don't understand. Okay, so, well, he weighs more than I do. We're the same height though. I guess it's maybe in the weighing part. Yeah, no way he,
1: he, he's strong, and you're, you're the opposite of that.
0: <laughs> I just don't understand it sometimes, What what is going on. I guess, what is it, forearms and wrists and coordination?
1: You know, quads and calves. I mean, muscle is dense, right? So, like, you can be... Uh, so you, you, deceptively heavy if you're also strong and you have a decent amount of muscle on your frame. Yeah. Uh, fat is generally not not as heavy as muscle, so you don't have to look fat in order to be a solid, thick, two hundred pound, five foot ten guy.
0: Yeah. Alright. Well I guess he's that. Uh, yeah. but he would still be he would still be an average player even if he was hitting like five or seven home runs fewer per year. I
1: mean I think that's what Scouts thought he was going to be. I think they looked at him and said this is a guy who's going to, you know, have a good approach at the plate. He's going to hit for conduct, he's going to hit some doubles in the gap. Uh, this guy could be an average player, and I think that that's kind of the lingering scouting report on him that year has made outdated. Uh, he was an average player until he
0: got good. Right. So, uh, what's going on with the Mariners now? Do they? Who do they have on their team? What did they? Uh, they had all this. Just they had a bunch of beefy guys last year.
1: Uh, well, less so than the year before. I mean, the year right.
0: before it was really the Michael Morse.
1: Uh, in the outfield with, you know, Raul LaBunia. Like, the, that was the DH experiment well, gone terribly wrong.
0: Right. Well, last year I remember Co- Corey Hart.
1: Right. Who, yeah, they, they had Corey Hart, and then they, he didn't do very well, so they replaced him with Kendris Morales. But those guys were DHs for the most part. Most teams have beefy DHs. Uh, you know, last year they were playing a, Andy Chavez in a corner pretty regularly. Uh You know, they, they were definitely more athletic, especially after they traded for Austin Jackson. Uh, James Jones was their center fielder for a while. He's extremely fast. They were less beefy than they had been in prior years. Right. Uh, but they still, even with Robinson Cano and, and a pretty good Kyle Seeger, uh the offense wasn't very good because the the two hitters they have are left-handed, and there was basically no offensive punch against right-hand or against left-handed pitching.
0: Is there any sits uh, I mean, obviously, well, how many? uh us How many team control years, or where was Seeger in terms of arbitration? He
1: had, he had three arb years. So they bought out four free agent years. Uh, if you go with Matt Swartz's arbitration projections and assume reasonable raises, Seeger probably would have made between 25 and 30 million in arbitration over those three years. So you're looking at, you know, basically 70 to 75 million dollars for four years of free agency of Kyle Seeger, uh, which as I said on MLB Network about, well, an hour ago from when we were recording, several hours ago from when people were listening to this, uh, you know, basically values him as kind of like Chase Headley. I think Headley's gonna sign for something in that. Four sixty-five, five seventy-five range as a free agent this winter. So you know, Seeger basically took what Headley's deal is going to be, just without inflation and the fact that you know figures probably a little bit better right now.
0: Right. And but, but a deal will that be a little strange too? I, I know the numbers you just quoted, but the, the market, um, the market maybe was not an ideal one for Headley because the two top field playing. Uh, Free agents were also third baseman or larger? Yeah, baseman? I'm,
1: I'm not sure that that's gonna have a huge impact. I think the main reason that Headley's gonna get less than Sandoval, uh, and Ramirez is, is that the bat has declined the last couple of years. I mean, he had that monster 2012 and then, you know, last year he was basically a, mm-hmm. an average hitter overall and he was pretty dreadful for the first half when a lot of people were watching him, uh, before they, you know, got traded to New York and, and did pretty well to finish off the year. Uh, but I think, you know, when you look at uh, his overall trajectory coming off a down year, not that dissimilar from Jason Hayward, who Fangraph's re- readers and listeners probably like a little bit more than the average as well. If you look at the longer term, you would say, oh man, this is a guy, you know, above average defender, does a bunch of things and has a history of hitting pretty well, where if you're just judging on 2014, you'd say, well, this guy's an average bat. At a corner position, I can find that pretty easily.
0: Okay. The uh, well, let's talk about the other two players I, or at least the, the, the two players I invoked. First of all, you, you're not in uh, some sort of wind tunnel, are you?
1: Uh, I'm in a dog park and it's
0: windy. Okay. All right. Well, people will have to deal with it. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, you know it's where I am. All right. That's where he is. Uh, we have let's see. We have Hanley Ramirez definitely signing a signing a contract.
1: Uh yeah I don't think that's been officially reported by the Red Sox but we're we're basically certain that have
0: yeah. Right and this is what 488 which is which is uh what's that w- with a vesting option for a fifth season.
1: Yeah it's uh when it came out last night uh the numbers were a little strange because uh, Ken Rosenthal uh reported that the deal was going to be in the range of five years and 90 million he didn't say it was going to be 590 but because we are not very good at interpreting uh english we all kind of took it as 590 which has seemed quite low i mean i, I guessed 7 140 i think even most people expected handling mirrors to get more than 18 million a year so when the when the terms of 590 came out i think we were surprised at how cheap it was 488 with a vesting option that could make it 5 110 makes a lot more sense i mean that's kind of uh, it's even still maybe a year or two shorter than I would have thought, but it's the right amount of money per year based on what other players are getting.
0: Do you have a sense that uh, Ramirez was, I mean, I would say, I would assume not, because usually players will take the best offer, but do you have a sense that he, if he had waited, maybe he would have gotten a better offer?
1: I wouldn't be surprised if he turned down money. I, I think, you know, there's been a decent amount written about Hanley's affection for David Ortiz uh, and their relationship uh, I think, you know, the Fenway Park is a pretty good spot for a right-handed pull power guy like Hanley Ramirez. Uh, I think if he has eyes on having a productive second half of his career, Boston's probably a more likely place for him to succeed than maybe Seattle, who's a team who had been rumored of, of going hard after him earlier in the offseason. I wouldn't be surprised if the Mariners maybe offered him 6-120 or something in that range. Uh, you know, maybe a week or two ago, and he decided he just didn't want to go to Seattle. And once you take a a suitor off the market who's willing to offer you more, the Red Sox might have said, "Well, we have some leverage here. This is what we're willing to pay you for if you want to come play with David Ortiz." And he might have just decided that his friendship with Ortiz was worth, uh, and you know, the ability to play in Fenway Park, uh, and on a winning team was worth you know the difference of ten or you know twenty million dollars.
0: Does there any is there any history of players because of course uh, Ramirez uh came up through the Boston system. Yep. Uh was traded, I believe, along with Anibal Sanchez. I don't know if anyone else was involved in that deal for... Mike Lowell, right? Mike Lowell. That was, and That was
1: the Mike Lowell deal.
0: And was Josh Beckett in that Josh, too? Josh
1: Beckett was in that trade as well,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, it was certainly worked out for Boston. and Well, it worked out for everybody. I yeah, think. I
1: mean, the Marlins won a World Series, and the Red Sox got some pretty good players.
0: Yeah. So um, is there any sort of history, though, or does it seem like it happens more often than not that a player might return to the, the team... Um, Whose system he came up through? Is there any sort of logic to that?
1: No, I think we generally see the opposite. I think usually once a team has traded you away, uh, even if there's a future fit, uh, in in you say, okay, well, you know, that was five or six years ago. Maybe it's water under the bridge. Players seem to have some kind of memory, or at least teams say, you know, that didn't work here for some some reason that we thought this wasn't a good fit, and this continues to not be a good fit. Uh, I think it's pretty unusual to see a team trade a player away and then later reacquire that player. Uh, I don't think that happens as often as we might think.
0: Right, although, um, and this is a slightly different situation, but maybe it teaches us something. Of course, uh, John Lester, I think isn't John Lester on record as saying that he would like to go back to the Red Sox? Well, during the season when he was with the Red Sox, he he made some comments
1: that he would, you know, his preference was to sign there. But pretty much every free agent or every player under contract says their preference is to sign with the team that they want to sign with or that they're currently with. Uh, just because they say it doesn't necessarily make it true. Uh, I, I think the lesser thing is is interesting in that uh, you know he doesn't seem to be giving the Red Sox a significant discount. Uh, so if he wants to play there, he might want to play there at full market value.
0: Right, which is the same place as playing other places, except maybe he just likes his Boston more. I mean, yeah, he might just like the city, but not like the city enough to give them a discount. Right. Um, okay, so when you was this last night, uh, you wrote about the, uh, or is it this morning, Hanley Ramirez and the log jam in Boston?
1: Yeah, it was both. It was two a.m. Eastern, so late last night or very early this morning, depending on your your perception.
0: Right. Uh, one way in which you looked at the possible signing or the impending signing, the likely signing, uh, was to examine the Red Sox, you know, their likely starting nine. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, in a vacuum, it's a good, it's a good starting nine. Of course, there's some difficulty in that. The only left-handed batter, uh, throughout the entire lineup is, is David Ortiz. Right. Uh, which of course, uh, would make the team susceptible to difficult, well, to any, to all right-handed pitchers, but in particular, if a, if a right-handed ace came in, that might make things, uh, hard for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, the lineup is too right-handed, which is why they're pursuing Sandoval and likely going to sign Sandoval. But even then, you're still looking at a 7-2 right-left split. I think, uh, you know, it's most likely that they're probably not done, and they're going to keep adding lefties in order to balance things out.
0: Uh, I, I'm sure that, uh, Tango uh, et al. discussed this in the book, which was, you know, that's what, ten, over 10 years old. Um, Uh, Remind me, though, are left-handers more likely to show a split than right-handed batters?
1: Yeah, the platoon uh, differential is larger for lefties than righties. I think it's uh, something like 12 or 13 points for a right-handed batter and 18 or 19 points for a left-handed batter. It's not... Enormous, but uh, I think there's more left-handed specialists. Uh, you don't see too many righty one-out guys in the bullpen. Uh, usually it is side-armings, you know, guys who come in just as one-out guys, pitch from the left side, like a Randy Choate or someone like that. Uh, you don't have a lot of right-handed equivalents. Uh, so my guess is that's one of the main reasons why uh, left-handers just tend to not hit their same, same-handed pitchers as well as right-handers. And, and, you know, in high school and college, there's probably fewer good left-handed pitchers, so maybe they just don't see as many while they're developing either.
0: Now, uh, we'll get to the Sandoval situation in a second. I think that – what, did you write last week about right-handed power and the degree to which it's being coveted?
1: Yeah, I think uh, on Friday uh, when I was kind of – started out the post – uh, talking about, you know, the day before or two days before I'd written about uh, the A's acquiring Billy Butler and how I thought that was a little strange given that, uh, you know, Billy Butler's not that good. And in some response, people were like, well, you know, there's not very many good right-handed hitters in baseball. What You know, name who else they could have gotten. And so I decided to to look around and be like, well, who could they have gotten? And I, I uh, decided to write a post about Tyler Moore of the Washington Nationals, who's mm-hmm. uh, out of options and probably going to be traded for minimal return this winter. Uh, and in the process of explaining why Tyler Moore had value, uh, I had to note that there weren't very many other guys out there. He was—I was kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel, uh, finding you know the Nationals' backup first baseman because there just uh, aren't a lot of you know competent above-average right-handed hitters who are you know reasonably available in the market this winter.
0: Right. Whereas uh, Ike Davis, for example. Yeah. Or Adam Lind. Adam Lind, right? So Adam yeah. Lind was acquired uh, after From the. the- for right. Marco Estrada,
1: yeah. They picked up his uh, $7.5 million option and then traded him for a guy who might be non-tendered this winter. Right. Uh, so basically given away.
0: And then Ike Davis was worth uh, how much are they going to pay him?
1: They're going to pay Ike Davis $4.5 million if they don't non-tender him. Uh, and he has a couple years of team control remaining. Uh, and both of those guys project as, like, 118 WRC-plus guys by steamer. You might think that's optimistic for Davis, considering he hasn't done that well lately, but even if you think he's a 110 guy, which is basically his career numbers, that makes him, you know, an okay, slightly above average, uh, strong half of a platoon, and the Pirates decided they would rather designate that for assignment Uh, then pay it $4.5 million.
0: Right. And, of course, we're also, uh, in terms of that, in terms of uh, projecting, you said that Ike Davis was, what, 117, 118, somewhere around there?
1: Yeah, basically the same range as Butler. I think they're all in that 117 range.
0: Right, and Billy Butler is able to make uh, $30 million, though.
1: Right. And I think that kind of shows that, you know, Michael Gadiar is another example of this. Uh, You know, slightly above average but not fantastic right-handed hitters are, are earning way more than we would expect uh, based on what the left-handed guys of that same ilk are getting, uh, which is you know maybe one of the reasons why I'm a little surprised at how little Hanley Ramirez took, uh, given that he offered probably the best right-handed power of any player on the market this winter.
0: Well, and this is what I'm going to ask. Uh, the the Red Sox, if if we say that there's a dearth of right-handed power in the major mm. leagues... It's all in
1: Boston. It's all in Boston. I mean, yeah, like, they... uh,
0: Mike Napoli, for example, and UNA Cespedes are yeah. more or less the definitions of, of right-handed power. Uh, Napoli is a little bit more, uh, play discipline and Cespedes is, has probably a little bit more raw power, but that's what those guys do.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think, uh, the Red Sox have been collecting this skill set for a while, maybe in anticipation of the fact that there isn't a lot of right-handed power in the game. I think, uh, you know, they traded for Cespedes in July, knowing that there was a decent chance they were going to flip him this winter, uh, and that his right-handed power would be in demand.
0: So given given the, um, the, your answer to the question I asked you before about the differences in the likely platoon split, or likely differences in the platoon split, if you're going to stock up with only one sort of hitter, does it make sense to stock up exclusively with righties or exclusively with lefties, or it is both so bad you shouldn't do it?
1: I mean, I, I think you don't want nine of, of one or the other. You want a balance. Uh, but I think if you're going to lean one way or the other, it's probably slightly better in today's day and age to lean right-handed um, because I think it's easier to find, uh, say, a left-handed platoon guy like an Ike Davis or an Adam Lind or someone like that who could come off the bench or be a part-time guy where you can uh, kind of have him split the role um, than if you have like uh, too many left-handers. Uh, trying to find a right-hander who can be productive in a, in a part-time role seems to be a little bit harder right now. There just aren't that many uh, decent right-handed lefty mashers uh available where there seem to be a preponderance of similar left handed hitters who can you know hit right handed pitching and not do a whole lot else.
0: Right. There's uh okay, so so with regard to the Red Sox again, uh before before yesterday, before they signed Haley Ramirez or um or I don't know where the the exact thing is, but it, all indications are that he's signing there. Maybe they've already yeah. um uh before they did that, they had a... they had a They had a couple players, and it wasn't clear what their roles would be. So, for example, they have Mookie Betts. Yeah. Um, But they also have Rosny Castillo and Ioannis Espedes. That could be their outfield. But they also have Shane Victorino. uh, And Alan Craig. And and Alan Craig. And, you you know, Jackie Bradley Jr.'s uh, offensively was not great, but uh, his defense – Right. Appeared to compensate for that,
1: and Daniel Nava, who's uh, one of these kind of lefties who can't hit lefties that we've been talking
0: about. Right, but it could be certainly in a in a platoon in a platoon role could be very effective. Right. Uh, uh, yeah,
1: I think they had seven outfielders before they signed Hanley Rivera.
0: Right. So in your sort of provisional in your sort of provisional version of the Red Sox lineup, you included Mookie Betts in right field, but there are a number of scenarios in which Mookie Betts is not the right fielder too. Yeah,
1: my, my understanding, and, you know, I could be wrong, maybe they're going to trade Mookie Betts this offseason. I don't think they are. I think they're committed to Mookie Betts as one of their future franchise players, and he's going to play almost every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, my guess is that Betts and Ruzny Castillo and Shane Victorino will share two jobs between them. Uh, if the young kids are playing well, Victorino will get the short end of the stick. If one of the kids is not playing well, then Victorino will reclaim a, a regular role, and and one of the two kids will lose playing time.
0: Okay. Um, now, at third base, there was, was some combination of Will Middlebrooks or maybe the Cicchini um, if if they were you know if he somehow uh, distinguished himself during uh, during spring training there was not a there was not an over the top slam dunk option and uh, certainly acquiring Hamlin Ramirez would seem as though um, that would it's ob- you know obviously he's going to be the third base starter however uh, the Red Sox also apparently you now some uh, maybe speak to this uh, some outlets are reporting the like the Sandoval deal mm-hmm. as a definite. Uh, in other places I haven't, like at MLB Trade Rumors, which of course keeps very, uh, close tabs on things, they're not re- they're not reporting it in the same way.
1: Yeah, so basically we have a discrepancy. So, uh, the interesting thing about some of these signings over the last week or so is that generally, uh, Ken Rosenthal and John Heyman and Buster Olney and a few others have gotten like 95% of the transaction news in the last couple of years. Uh, but, you know, the Butler news was reported by a couple of teenagers, uh, and I think over the weekend, both Red Sox signings were first reported by guys who, uh, are not, you know, big name beat guys or national guys, uh, like Heyman or Rosenthal. So, uh, I think the Ramirez news, uh, came out yesterday afternoon, um, and then was later confirmed by, uh, the big guys. And then the Fondeval news came out last night by, I think, uh, a guy named Jack Wesley. I hope I'm getting his name right. Uh, sorry if I'm not. But, uh, John Heyman confirmed it himself this morning, but others have had it disputed uh, and Sandoval's agent has said that no deal is done so we basically have some guys saying that the Red Sox or sources but most likely sources within the Red Sox fan office, are telling them the deal is done uh, whereas the Sandoval camp is saying that it is not done mm-hmm. uh, most likely it probably is and the Red Sox uh are uh correct in their assessment that they basically have an agreement. Uh whereas the Sandoval camp maybe just hasn't signed all the the I's and Ts and hasn't let the the other teams in the bidding know that it's a done deal. My guess is Sandoval ends up in Boston and we'll we'll get official confirmation from it at some point today.
0: Okay. So 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 we say there's probably there's above a fifty percent chance that Sandoval is becoming a Boston Red Sox.
1: Uh, probably above
0: a 95% chance. I okay. mean, usually
1: when uh, someone's gonna report that the deal yeah. is almost done, it almost always happens.
0: Okay, so, so he's, uh, has played a lot of third base, uh, and, uh, presumably is their third, is their third baseman now. Yeah, Sandoval's gonna play third, Ramirez is going to the outfield. Ramirez is going to the outfield. Now, we've yeah. just discussed that there were many outfielders. Yeah. Uh, tell me more about that, Dave Cameron.
1: Well, I think Cespedes is gone. Uh, you know, I think even before they signed Ramirez, uh, Cespedes looked like a pretty decent trade chip, uh, especially because Boston's looking for starting pitching, and he's probably their outfielder with the most trade value besides the young kids they don't want to move. Uh, so Cespedes is—I think we can just cross him off the list. Boston's going to trade you in Cespedes uh, in the next couple of months. Um, so that leaves Ramirez essentially to take Cespedes' spot, and now you have kind of the same—you uh, know—Bets, Castillo, Victorino job share in center and right field. Um, and then you say, okay, maybe uh, depending on what I want to do with Nava and Craig, uh, that might impact whether they keep Mike Napoli. And that's one of the things I speculated on in the post is perhaps a Nava-Craig or a Juan Francisco-Craig platoon at first base makes sense if the Red Sox want to unload Napoli's $16 million salary and use that to go make a run at, say, Max Scherzer or Brandon McCarthy or Urban Santana.
0: Now, you, you mentioned that uh, Ioannis Cespedes is a great trade chip. What what makes him a great trade chip as opposed to other players in the roster?
1: Well, I don't know that he's a great trade chip, but he's healthier than Shane Victorino. He's got, uh, significantly more power than Daniel Nava or Alan Craig. Uh, and his contract is more friendly. I think if you look at, you know, a $10 million, uh, 2015 guarantee, uh, pretty much every team in baseball could afford that. Where you look at teams, I think Alan Craig's due $24 million over the next three years. Certainly not an expensive deal, but for what he was last year, Teams might not look at that as a bargain or a, a surplus value, uh, and you look at Victorino at 13 million, coming off a, an injury-prone year where he didn't play very much or very well. That's probably not a deal that a lot of teams would be signing up for either.
0: You now, um, when the Red Sox, the Red Sox acquired Cespedes, uh, of course, just last year, um, you know, at a very basic level uh teams when they're acquiring players in the draft or in international free agency they just take the, whatever be, the best talent is uh, that's available uh typically though if they're dealing in trades or free agency i, I mean it depends with the trade if it's a prospect then they'll take whatever you know whatever the most valuable prospect is they can get uh but usually if it's a major leaguer they're looking to fill a role <coughs> it, it it would appear as though given the depth that they had around that time that the Red Sox weren't necessarily dead set on filling a role or they were willing to they were willing to just get get the best value they possibly could with a view to a situation like this where they might they might trade him down the road even if it's just after he's played there for two or three months.
1: Yeah, I think it's not so much that they were looking for just the best value, as much as they were looking for the best twenty fifteen value. So
0: they probably could have taken a better
1: collection of prospects if they wanted kids in a ball or double a and you could have gotten more years of team control and and maybe more total potential value but i think you know the red sox didn't weren't interested in a rebuild and they weren't interested in selling their fans on a rebuild or their their veteran players on a rebuild they were looking at it and saying we want to win next year we don't know that we're going to sign hanley ramirez and pablo sandoval in free agency maybe the bidding is going to get insane maybe they don't want to come to boston there's a lot of information they didn't have in july so Cespedes gave them options, right? So like Cespedus was essentially a uh a backup plan to where if they couldn't go get someone that they liked a little bit more, then they had someone in house who could, you know, be a regular right handed outfielder for them and provide some power that they felt they needed. But if they you know put together a plan that did result in them landing uh Sandoval and Ramirez, they also had a guy who still had some trade value and trade value to a lot of teams because there's a lot of teams trying to win uh in twenty fifteen, uh probably more than would be looking for prospects this winter.
0: And he has right-handed power.
1: Yeah, that's the, that's the buzzword this winter, is right-handed power.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, so there you go. So there's Hanley Ramirez, there's Pablo Sandoval, they're fitting on that team. And you, but you mentioned that the right Sox, the Red Sox are, might even still be candidates for, for Scherzer? Yeah,
1: I think, uh, my guess is they're not gonna get John Lester. I mean, this is a gut feeling only, but I think they're gonna get outbid for Lester. Uh, and, you know, I think if you look at it and say, okay, if they felt like the Lester bidding was not going their way, and they had, you know, two or three major free agent contracts they were going to want to sign this winter. uh they would say, okay, you know, maybe we think we wanted Sandoval, Lester, and then a third guy. We're not going to get Lester, so let's get Ramirez instead and then, you know, potentially use the, you know, Position players that Ramirez is replacing, which would be Napoli or Cespedes, or maybe both, and trade them in order to free up enough money to go after, you know, the other frontline guy on the market, in Scherzer. I, w- I wouldn't be too surprised because there's not an obvious landing spot for Scherzer, and the, the Red Sox want an ace. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if Boston ended up being a uh, surprising competitor for Scherzer if they don't land Lester.
0: Okay, I, w- I would like to watch. Uh, you mentioned that if if the Red Sox go to Napoli, there might be uh, it might be a combination package of Juan Francisco and Alan Craig. I mean, you know, I think
1: they would be a left-right platoon of some sort, and they just claim Francisco and Waver. So, they, you know, Nava and Francisco are kind of their in-house uh left-right or left-left-handed options for a platoon. And I know you like Francisco's light tower power, even though he does absolutely nothing else.
0: Yeah, Uh I do. I do like it. Yeah, um, yeah my well, guess is I, I, that
1: will not not actually be their platoon next year. I was uh, using Francisco as an example of a player type uh in which they could get a better type of that player.
0: Well, I, I like him specifically. Okay,
1: well, tough for you.
0: Yeah, I guess it's maybe tough. he'll
1: end up on the Cardinals because everyone you like ends up on the Cardinals.
0: I know they they do. Yeah, they you, do. Dean, Anna,
1: and Ty Kelly. Yeah, I, this is pretty great.
0: We're so gonna we're
1: gonna buy you jerseys,
0: I think. I don't ca- actually care to watch those sorts of players, either, and I think that that's <laughs> the thing. That they're actually boring players, right? Because uh, they have they don't really have any physical tools, and they only their offensive skill mostly is that they control the strike zone.
1: Yeah, they're Matt Carpenter or Colton Wong.
0: Right. <laughs> the, that,
1: the, the Cardinals like, like guys like this.
0: Right. But they, if, at the end of the year, you look at their numbers, and their numbers are good, and also you look that they've helped their team not, you know, especially like a, like an acquisition like Anna where he can even play shortstop. Like, if you know, if there's an injury in the Cardinals, then they have Dean Anna. Yeah. I mean,
1: other teams have had this before and decided that he's not as good as you think, but maybe the Cardinals will actually play him.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. They didn't. They didn't play him as much. Uh, what, did we, what did we get to? We're still we by about a half hour. In, uh, oh wait, you mentioned that there was that it was re- the Billy Butler deal was reported by teenagers.
1: Yeah, there were uh, I think Robert Murray uh, and then uh, I'm actually forgetting the other kid's name, but the Robert Murray I think is 18 and the other kid who runs his site with him is 13 and those those were the two guys who got the scoop on the Billy Butler deal. What, what, what site is it? Uh, cover those bases, I think is the, the, one of the sites. They have two. It's, uh, I will admit I really, I've never heard of either of them before the Billy Butler deal, so they probably, uh, are sitting here wishing I knew more about them. Uh, feel free and leave comments and, and, pimp your website in the comments. Yeah, if I'm getting it wrong.
0: Yeah, uh, but that was, uh, I, do you, do you know the, what, the machinations that, uh, behind that, or is it just something that happened?
1: Well, my guess is they're kind of following in the Chris Cotillo, uh, path, uh, where Cotillo, I think, was, uh, 17 or 18 last year or the year before when he started, uh, breaking some minor news and then last year got some actual major news. Uh, and they're like, hey, if, if that kid can do it, maybe I can do it as well. Uh, you know, reporting is not one of those things that you necessarily have to, uh, have a credential for. If you can, you know, uh, find someone who's willing to talk to you, uh, and, you know, they feel like, uh, it's in their benefit to let you get the, uh, scoop on the deal and they give it to you, uh, then you can get, you know, a breaking news or a, uh, a, a piece of a transaction analysis before anyone else, uh, um, simply through creating a connection and you don't have to be, you know, in your 20s or 30s in order to form a connection with someone who knows something.
0: Right. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, that's more than I was doing at that age. Although or,
1: you. Or at this age, probably.
0: <laughs> um, which you, that's great. The, um, would you care finally to tell me what is happening with Justin Upton right now?
1: Uh, well, my guess is he's probably sitting at home playing video games.
0: Okay, what is the what is the status on Justin Upton? Still an Atlanta Brave. Still on the Braves, but do we think uh, are, you hoping, would...
1: are you hoping I expound a little more?
0: I don't know. I don't care. I mean, I just I honestly, I just remember that he and Evan Gaddis were maybe trade possibilities. But
1: yeah, Upton's going to be traded this winter. When the Braves traded Hayward, they basically signaled that they're probably not going to try and win in 2015. If you're not trying to win in 2015, there's no real reason to keep Upton, especially if you don't think you're going to sign him to a long-term deal. Uh, so they're going to trade him uh, probably to a team like Seattle, who's been rumored to be interested in him before, or Texas, who has a significant need for a right-handed. Uh, corner outfielder and has also uh, expressed interest in him so I would not be surprised at all if Justin Upton ended up in the uh, American League
0: West uh, ju- uh, Justin Upton right-handed power right-handed
1: power, that's what everyone wants
0: oh, Man, my goodness, alright uh, well you did it, you did it Dave Cameron
1: hooray for us
0: yeah, thank you, uh, and I guess, are well, you still at this dog park?
1: I am still at the dog park, yeah currently right. the dog is trying to play with a husky on the other side of the fence so the, do- the husky is not in the dog park. Uh, Liberty is in the dog park, and she desperately wants this husky to be in the dog park with her. Why isn't
0: him. the dog park? Why isn't? What is this uh, husky doing?
1: Uh, it's getting walked by its owners uh, around the perimeter.
0: Around the perimeter.
1: Yeah.
0: Any reason why th- these people have uh, come to a dog park not to have their dog interact with other dogs?
1: Well, sometimes the dogs are not friendly or they're learning how to socialize or oh. perhaps the owners have some fear issues uh, and, and are afraid their dog will get mauled by, you know, my super vicious uh, lab hound combination.
0: Yeah, I've seen your dog. Your, dog, your, dog, your dog. your dog's most aggressive move is just to lay on people.
1: Uh, yeah, she's actually doing more of that lately. She's gotten even more snuggly since you since you were here. Oh,
0: really, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's mostly what she does. I mean, she, she will occasionally like to chase a thing. Yeah,
1: she chases and snuggles and yeah. eats.
0: Yeah. yeah, there you go. Not a bad life.
1: Yeah, you know. no, right. If you can get it, you yeah. know. You, yeah. I think it requires fur. But.
0: Well, uh, as an Italian, some people in my family are <laughs> right. coated in layers of hair.
1: Maybe, uh, maybe they snuggle and eat too.
0: They, but they do. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. That's the yeah. kind of how they live their lives. Um, all right. Are right, you done, Dave Cameron? Uh, but so, thank you very much. Thank you. That is uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestooli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.